Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Despite assuming the presidency from the 20th century's narrowest election victory, John F. Kennedy captivated the American public's imagination even before his untimely death. What was it that made JFK so compelling in his own time and continues to contribute to his enduring appeal today? We dive into the answer to that question by unpacking some of Kennedy's personal qualities and complexities with Mark Updegrove, author of Incomparable Grace, JFK and the Presidency. We begin our conversation with how JFK's upbringing and war experience shaped him. We talk about his leadership style while in office, how he intentionally cultivated his cool and appealing image, and what his wife Jackie added to that image. Mark explains what was behind Kennedy's infamous affairs and how JFK championed physical fitness despite being in tremendous physical pain himself. We end our conversation with a trace that worked both for and against JFK's success as president. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash jfk. Mark Updegrove, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Brett. So you have a new biography out about John F. Kennedy called Incomparable Grace. And this is about his presidency. There's a lot of biographies about JFK out there. What were you trying to do with this bio? Like, how is it different from the other ones that you've seen out there? You know, there hasn't been a good biography on Kennedy's presidency for quite some time, for a few years. I think you have to look at important historical figures from time to time through the lens of the, the times in which you're living. So, so that was part of it. And part of it too is that I wanted a, a brisk take on Kennedy's presidency, something with a, a narrative that was as dramatic as the times that JFK faced during his presidency. So the reader could really understand why this president, who was just in office under three years, is regarded so highly, why his presidency still means something 60 years after his death. Well, we'll talk about that. Like, hopefully, we can answer that question: Why he still matters? Like, but why do you think? I mean, you know, the sixty years after he's been president, like, why do you think JFK still holds so much sway in our collective imagination? You know, there's something about the Kennedy image, and that that sort of nods to the title, incomparable grace. JFK comes into the presidency and captures the imagination of the American people, despite the fact that he only captured the presidency by two-tenths of a percentage point. 118,000 votes make the difference in John F. Kennedy being president versus Richard Nixon. So it was a very narrow victory, the most narrow of the 20th century. But when he becomes president-elect, the the American people were kind of swept up, not only in John F. Kennedy, their soon-to-be president, but also the Kennedy family. His wife, Jacqueline Kennedy, was casts this glamorous image of her own, his two small children, and the larger Kennedy family, which is so vivacious and, and attractive. So that's, that's part of it. The image of Kennedy, I think, continues to captivate us. And I think, moreover, Brett, he, he's the way we want to be seen. He's visionary. He's eloquent. He's elegant. He's rampantly ambitious. He's youthful. He has this vigor that's the way we wanted to be seen when he was president. I think in some ways, that's the way we want our country to be seen today. And I, yeah, let's dig in because I hope we, by the end of this podcast, people will have an, kind of an idea of why JFK is so 
so captivating? Because I think once you look at the details of his life, you start to understand like what was going on there. So let's start before he was president, because as you said, his family, the Kennedy family, played a big role in shaping his life and his political career. So as a, as a boy, as a young man, what was Kennedy like? Did he showcase signs that he would you know, eventually become the leader of the free world during post-World War II America? Probably not. <laughs> this is a kid who grew up wealthy during uh, the Great Depression. His father amassed an enormous fortune during the, the greatest economic calamity ever to befall the country. So to say the least, JFK grew up in privilege. He also grew up very sickly and struggled with health issues throughout the course of his youth. His father, though, the, the ambitious Kennedy patriarch, Joe Kennedy, not only amassed a fortune, but also had political ambitions for himself and for his family. As far as he went, he really wanted to get in the, he thought himself that he might be the first Catholic president of our country. And eventually, as he accrues great wealth, Franklin Roosevelt owes him and asks him what he would like to do. And he says, I'd like to be either, you know, secretary of the treasury or the ambassador to Great Britain in the court of St. James. And FDR reluctantly gives the post to the Catholic Joe Kennedy, which was a, a first to say the least to have a Catholic be the ambassador, United States ambassador to Great Britain. But he becomes an isolationist at the, the beginning of World War II. He espouses a position of isolationism. And that means that he's out of favor, not only with Roosevelt, rather, but when we get into the Second World War, that he was on the wrong side of history, more or less. So he more or less transfers those ambitions to his children. And I think the great hope for the family was Joe Kennedy Jr., Kennedy's the elder Kennedy's namesake, who dies in the war. And when he dies, I think the ambitions that Joe Kennedy had for his eldest son are thrust at John F. Kennedy. And after the war, Kennedy throws his hat in the ring for political office, and that leads ultimately to his becoming president of the United States. Well, I think it's important to flesh out this dynamic between John F. Kennedy and Joe Kennedy Jr. Because Joe Kennedy, like he was the favorite son. He was like the all-star, the good-looking guy, did well in school, athlete. Then he had John Kennedy, who was sort of like, eh, you know, we didn't have really didn't think much of him. <laughs> He was a bit of a screw up, you know, versus his brother. There was, there was this incredible competition between the two brothers. And at one point, they have a contest to see who can run fastest around the block. And they both go in separate directions. And whoever hits the base first wins. And the two are coming in, running toward one another. And neither will give way to the other. And eventually, they end up colliding. And Joe Kennedy wins the race and John F. Kennedy ends up going to the hospital, which is almost a metaphor for what happened in their, their youth. Joe Kennedy got all the glory and achieved a great deal. And John F. Kennedy ended up being frequently in the hospital because of health issues, not reaching the potential that his brother had reached. And then, yeah, when John F. Kennedy heard that his brother died, he, he like mournfully said he understood what this meant. You know, I think he said, the burden now falls to me. Like he understood like now my dad's ambitions, I got to carry that now. Yeah. And I think he felt a certain responsibility himself for carrying the torch of the next generation in some respects, I, irrespective of his father's ambitions for him. He had his own ambitions. And, you know, it's important to note, Brett, that, that John F. Kennedy would not have gotten into politics if it didn't suit him as well. 
It happened to suit his father's ambitions for him and other members of his family, but it was also something that fit Jack Kennedy at that point in his life. He wanted to be, as he, as he said later, relating to the presidency, he wanted to be in the center of the action. So for anyone who was ambitious post-World War II, it was almost instinctive to want to go to Washington. So you have these folks coming out of uh, World War II off the front lines, coming back stateside and wanting to make their mark on the world. And the way you did that at the time, the, the natural way to do that was to get into elective politics and to go to Washington. So you have Richard Nixon and uh, Gerald Ford and others uh, almost instinctively throwing their hats in the ring after coming back from uh, the Pacific Theater or, or Europe in World War II. Well, before we move to his political career, something we often forget, people forget, is that Kennedy also, he served in World War II in, in the Navy. He had wartime experience. In fact, he wrote a book based off his wartime experience. How did his experience in World War II influence his leadership philosophy? You know, he captained a PT boat, PT-109, and it was split in half by a Japanese torpedo in the Pacific. And and at that point, John F. Kennedy really shows his courage and his leadership medal. All of his crew members, two, two of his crew members die in the blast, but it falls to him to help the his uh, crewmates, his, those under his charge, to swim to an island. And there's one of his troops who is incapacitated. And JFK puts his shirt in his teeth and he literally drags him to shore where ultimately they are rescued. But this is a real leadership challenge for John F. Kennedy and he steps up to the task. And I think it gives him much greater confidence than if he hadn't gone through World War II. So he gets back from the war. In the 50s, he begins his political career. Where did he get elected first? Was it representative, then senator? You know, he, he makes himself a candidate for Congress in the Massachusetts district around Boston, and this is 1946, and gets elected. He's terrible on the stump, Brett. And if you, you look at the legacy of John F. Kennedy, so much of it is around his rhetoric. He is a, he is a brilliant speaker. He captures one's imagination. But initially, he's pretty awkward on the stump. And his, in fact, he says his father thinks he's hopeless. But because of the power and prestige of the Kennedy family, he he wins the election and goes to Congress, where immediately he sets his sight from the lower chamber, the House of Representatives, to the upper chamber, the, the Senate. And in 1952, in a very tightly contested race, it ends up beating Henry Cabot Lodge, who is a very prodigious candidate. And so that leads to uh, the eight years that uh, Kennedy will spend in the Senate. And what was his career like as a senator? Was he productive? You know, I think in both the House and Senate, he didn't have a particularly illustrative tenure. He was more or less a backbencher in the Senate. I think at that point, as soon as he got to the Senate, he was focused on the next rung and and the presidency. He, is, he was trying to determine how he might become the vice presidential nominee of his party on the ticket in 1956, uh, that comes close to happening. When it doesn't, he sets his sight on being the presidential candidate in 1960 and ends up getting the nomination. So he wasn't an LBJ when he was like a when he was a senator. He wasn't good at the the back the back out you know the backdoor deals and things like that. You know, quite the contrary. I don't think he had uh, interest in the legislative process. LBJ was a creature of power. And he wielded it so effectively as perhaps the most powerful Senate majority leader in the history of our nation, certainly the most 
powerful of the of the 20th century. He had an instinctive sense of things. The, the legislative process really didn't didn't interest Jack Kennedy all that much. In fact, the most noteworthy thing he does during the course of his years in the Senate is write the book Profiles in Courage, which his father, through um, you know his purse strings, helps to make a commercial success, and also through his political connections, helps to make a Pulitzer Prize winner. So, in the mid fifties. Kennedy writes Profiles in Courage. It wins the Pulitzer Prize, and that helps to elevate the stature of young John F. Kennedy. So it seems like he has a personality more suited for the executive as opposed to the legislative branch. Because you highlight here that you know you said he wanted to be in the presidency because that's where the action's at. And he wanted the ability to get things done with a minimum of bureaucracy and organizational inefficiency. So you just want to be able to say, I want to do this, and you get it done. Well, that more more or less, yeah. I think you know what what he says when when Ben Bradley, who was then working for Newsweek and would ultimately be the uh, editor of the Washington Post, asks him why he wants to be the president. He he likens it to being Johnny Unitas, who played for the Baltimore Colts at the time, the NFL's champion team, and Unitas is the quarterback, and and that's what Kennedy wants. He he, he defines that as sort of the center of the action. Unitas could play other sports, other positions, but to be quarterback for the Baltimore Colts at that time, that's the peak of football. And it's for Kennedy being the president of the United States, the, the world's biggest superpower in the top position, that was about as high as you could get. And, and that would be the center of the action. To your point, you didn't have to get consensus in many cases from different people in the in the houses of Congress. There are many things you could do with the bully pulpit of the presidency, there are many things you could do through executive order. You didn't necessarily have to go through the sausage-making process that is needed to, to crank out a law. Something else that you, you point out in the book is when Kennedy took office, assumed, assumed office, he was inheriting this from uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower. And Eisenhower, he really, he effectively reorganized how the presidency was run. He you know, had the chief of staff and all that stuff. Kennedy comes in and he kind of starts mixing things up again. What was his leadership style? What was his organizational philosophy uh, when it came to his presidency? You know, Dwight Eisenhower was a military man and his administration was organized like a military man would would organize something that was stratified and there were different ranks and and you talk to the people below you and they talk to the people below them and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a, a traditional triangular structure with the person at the top and more people at, at each layer going down, but, but extraordinarily stratified and hierarchical. Kennedy didn't want that. Kennedy wanted to talk to whoever he wanted at any time, and he would poke his head into the offices of those two, three levels below him to get their take on things. He wasn't much interested in meetings. He wasn't much interested in briefings. He kind of felt his own way around the presidency, much, I would, I would add, to his detriment. It wasn't the best way to approach the presidency. There are many advisors who tried to get to them, who, who, to him who couldn't get to them. And at a certain point in his presidency, after he's stubbed his toe a time or two, we can talk about those early failures, his advisors come back to him and say, you got to help us out here. You have to adhere to some kind of structure in the White House. You might not want to hear this, but it'll be better for your presidency and it'll be better for us as well. Yeah, that's a recurring theme throughout the book is that Kennedy, he would stub his toe, he would make mistakes and big ones, but he always seemed to learn from them. Yeah, I think that's right. And and I mentioned JFK capturing the imagination of the American people upon his inauguration. We can all remember his soaring 
inaugural rhetoric, uh, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And it really galvanizes the country. Americans really start thinking beyond themselves about what they personally can be doing for their country. The the Peace Corps, which is enacted in, in Kennedy's first year, is a manifestation of that. Us thinking about the greater good and doing something big for our country, something, something important. But he, his first few months are not particularly successful. The Bay of Pigs, which is a, a failed incursion of Cuba by a former Cuban nationalists, goes awry. It's, it's, it's supported by the U.S. government, although clandestinely. And it is an enormous failure. Over a hundred Cubans die. Over you know a thousand are taken captive, captive rather, and and it's a big black eye for the administration. But it says something, Brett, that when this happens, this huge fiasco in world view, that John F. Kennedy's approval rating subsequent to that is an astounding eighty-three percent. Americans doubled down on presidency at a time in the Cold War when we knew the Russians were, were watching and might be emboldened by a foreign policy failure by the United States. So Kennedy never sees an approval rating higher than that that he sees after this huge mistake, the Bay of Pigs quagmire. Importantly, though, Nikita Khrushchev, Kennedy's counterpart in the Soviet Union, is watching there and believes, based on that and a disastrous summit with the, the Russian premier uh, just two months later, that Kennedy is weak and can be exploited. And I think that leads to Kennedy's greatest crisis, uh, which happens in 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And we'll talk about that here in a bit. But before we do, we talk about this, this mystique around Kennedy, this image that he projected. And this was intentional. Like He was aware of it. Like he was very aware of the image he was uh, showcasing to the population. I think he saw himself, I think I've read, you know, the, it's weird in the United States, our president is not only like a parliamentary figure, like he's in charge of getting stuff done, but he's also the figurehead. In a lot of other countries, the figurehead separated from the parliamentary person. So like in the UK, you have the queen, who's the figurehead, then you have the prime minister. The United States, it's it's one, it's the, it's the president. So he's very aware that I'm, I'm, I represent our country. What did he do to project the image that he wanted the the public to have of him. You know, it's funny because Kennedy doesn't consider himself a natural politician. He comes from uh, political stock, including his uh, maternal grandfather, Honey Fitz, the very colorful mayor of Boston, who is the the typical, you know, the stereotypical baby kissing, name knowing, back slapping politician. That is not John F. Kennedy. Kennedy was was cerebral. He was cool, and while he he thinks he's, in his words. The antithesis of a politician, which in many respects he is, if you compare him to that archetype you know, that, that his, his maternal grandfather personified. But he also knows, in his words, that he fits the times. Part of that is because of the medium of television, the dominant medium of the age. He knows he's suited to television. He has a cast a sort of glamorous image. He's you know, he's handsome, he's fit, he's, he's eloquent, as I mentioned earlier. There's a certain elegance. There's a way he carries himself that is incredibly alluring, and he knows that. That's part of the reason that he gets the presidency. You, you probably don't have John F. Kennedy in the presidency, but for the presidential debates with Richard Nixon, this who looks very pasty-faced versus, you know, the very vital John F. Kennedy. And it's probably that image alone 
that Kennedy casts that get him gets him the presidency in 1960. So so much of cool, so much of image is ineffable. It it can't be quite explained, and I think that's probably true with Kennedy. But there is a certain cool that he exudes. This incomparable grace, as my title would suggest, that is just captivating not only among Americans, but citizens of the world. Yeah, and like you said, it's ineffable, but he understood that it's there. And there's instances you highlight in the book where both him and his brother and some of AIDS, like they were, they would always be watching or reading the magazines or the newspaper articles. And anytime there was some instance where they kind of spoke badly, they're like, hey, they'd pounce on it. Like, we're gonna we're gonna put on the PR and we're gonna change the the conversation about this. No question about that. I mean, he knows the power of photography, the power of life magazine at the time. You know, the there were there were far fewer media properties at the time. You had three networks, ABC, NBC, CBS. You had a few news magazines, Time, Newsweek, US News. Uh, you had Life magazine, which was almost the people magazine of its day. There weren't many, and and John F. Kennedy was determined to dominate them as much as he could, but he also knew the power of the moving image as per my comment about television, but also the still image and how pictures of his young family could be so advantageous politically. In fact, when Jackie Kennedy left the White House on occasion, he would bring the kids into the into the Oval Office and have them photographed. And he would say, don't tell Jackie. <laughs> he knew the power of that, the image of him as a young, vigorous father of these very attractive young children. The Kennedys knew when they were playing touch football on the grounds of Hyannisport that that was probably going to be in the magazines and that would be enormously beneficial for them and what was the equivalent of page six at the time. So yes, Kennedy is definitely aware of image and how important that is in his political trajectory. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. And now back to the show. Well, speaking of an important part of his image, you mentioned his wife, Jacqueline Kennedy. What role did his wife play in his political career? Well, I think first and foremost, she was a support to him. She wanted him to be a great president. She saw the greatness potential in him and wanted him to realize that in the presidency. Some of what I tried to debunk in this book is the Kennedy mythology, this Camelot image that that comes after Kennedy is assassinated. And that's really Jacqueline Kennedy trying to tell the story of her, her late husband and trying to romanticize that presidency. She too knew the power of image and wanted to help make him a great president. She also knew her own value in terms of the image that she projected. When the Kennedys first go abroad, they first stop in France. And Jacqueline Kennedy was a a Francophile, and a Francophone. She could speak French. And that was very alluring to the French people who could be famously fickle. But Charles de Gaulle, the French president, fell in love with her. And she helped enormously in casting the right image to the French people. She created the White House Historical Association to build the White House into a thriving place for arts and culture and to make it the most beautiful house in the world. And uh, she was the right person to do that. She had an image for how the the, the White House should look and made a, a, a huge difference in making that the envy of the world in many respects. Yeah, that was my takeaway from the book. Jacqueline had a really fine-tuned political instinct that it paired well with her husband. Yeah, I think that's right. She was 
you know, she didn't love the political spotlight. She didn't love politics. She was certainly not a natural politician. I, I will say, you know, when he was a senator, she felt like she was a detriment to him. She was disadvantageous because she wasn't the typical political wife, just as Jack Kennedy wasn't the, the typical politician. But she didn't contrive a personality of somebody who was relatable. And that probably did hurt Kennedy when he was a senator. However, when she became first lady, that became tremendously advantageous. Her class, her refinement, her, her style sensibility helped to elevate the role of first lady and the White House as the center of power for the American government. Something I didn't know about Jackie and John Kennedy is they experienced a miscarriage and a stillbirth. How did those personal tragedies affect JFK and his wife? Well, the miscarriage comes in uh, in the in the mid nineteen fifties, and Kennedy is on holiday in Capri and actually doesn't come back when he finds out that the child has has died that that it has been stillborn, and Bobby Kennedy is the one who ends up tending to Jacqueline Kennedy. That's one of the, you know, that, that reflects the blemish on Kennedy's character. He was not a particularly good or faithful husband. And in fact, George Smathers, who is a friend of his in the Senate, tells him to, quote, get his ass back to the United States and tend to his wife if he has any presidential ambitions whatsoever. And Kennedy reluctantly leaves his European holiday, and goes back to be by his wife's side. By that time, the, the stillborn child has been buried by, because of his brother being, you know, taking charge in his brother's absence. So it's hard, to, it's hard to understand how Kennedy could be so callous and so selfish and reckless, but that's an example of it. The, the Kennedys also lose a son, Patrick, in the last year of Jack Kennedy's life, in August of 1963, Jacqueline Kennedy gives birth to a child prematurely named Patrick, and the child dies after two days. At that point, Kennedy is by his wife's side. And I think that that episode, losing a child, not only bound the Kennedys closer to one another, but bound the American people to, to Jack and Jacqueline Kennedy as well. So something you tackle in the book is Kennedy's womanizing, which he's you know infamous for. Were you able to figure out like what was behind that? You know, I think there are several factors. Number one, Kennedy comes from a father who was a, a rampant womanizer himself. He had open relationships with a number of folks. When he, for instance, split his time between the East Coast and Hollywood, where he was a principal at one of the studios, RKO which he helped to found. And he lived openly with Gloria Swanson, one of the great movie stars of the, of the silent and then later sound era. He was a quintessential philanderer. And so JFK, to a large extent, learns at the, the feet of the master, in a way. It sort of comes naturally based on the example that his father sets. Moreover, though, I think it's, it was a means of keeping score in the very competitive Kennedy household. You know, they would brag about their conquests, as indelicate as that may have been. I also think that JFK wanted to seize every moment of life possible. I think he saw his own mortality. He could see the fragility of life. And as he says frequently, you know, he wants to make the most of every moment. And for, for them, that was the ephemeral thrill of a conquest. And, we, you know, those, those things are, 
major blemishes on his character. But I think those are the reasons that he is such a rampant womanizer. Yeah. How do you make sense of it? Like, how do you incorporate that into the rest of Kennedy? You know, the, he was very, like so many uh, great men, he's compartmentalized. That's just a part of who he is. It's it's the most reckless and unattractive part of him. I mean, there, listen, it's part of the zeitgeist at the time too. So many lawmakers at that time in our history were having uh, affairs either, you know, secretively or openly in Washington. It was a pretty common thing. Kennedy goes a step further. You can't just rationalize that as being part of the Washington zeitgeist. There's one thing that I think is particularly unforgivable, and that is the relationship he has with a 19-year-old intern named Mimi Beardsley, to whom loses her virginity to Kennedy just a week into her tenure. And he really just objectifies her in a way that simply can't be explained or forgiven. This young, vulnerable girl being exploited by the president of the United States. At one point, uh, Kennedy asks her to perform a sex act on one of his friends and aides. Uh, and, I, and that just is absolutely unforgivable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, he, he, he kind of, he compartmentalized that in his head. Without question. And I think he thought maybe it was his right, the divine right of kings in a way, yeah. to do what he wants. I mean, he looks at British royalty. One of his favorite books has to do with uh, the, the British aristocracy at a certain point in time when they would do their duty in London during the uh, the course of the week and then in, in weekends go to to manor houses and sleep with each other's wives and girlfriends and those sorts of things. It was, it was almost uh, the right of the aristocracy to behave in that way. And I think Kennedy probably believed that as well. So something maybe a lot of people don't know is that he spent his life in uh, immense physical pain. What were his ailments that he had? Well, he had Addison's disease one, and that was that was something that he had battled throughout the, most of his life. And then he had chronic back pain, and there is a cocktail of drugs that he would have on any given day uh, in, in his tenure as president that is absolutely staggering. It is amazing how many injections and how many drugs Kennedy was taking to keep his pain at bay and to keep keep his uh, Addison's disease from affecting his performance. That said, you don't really see any examples of, of the, the drugs or the womanizing, for that matter, affecting his duties uh, in discharging the responsibilities that come as president of the United States. Yeah, he was, incredibly, he was incredibly stoic about his pain. Like, he'd be in pain, but he just wouldn't say, he wouldn't talk about it. Like, in fact, he had aides who said, like, I never heard Jack Kennedy ever complain about his pain. His closest friend, who knew him since his days in high school, said he never heard him complain about it, to your point. It's amazing. So there is a certain stoicism, a certain courage that comes from Kennedy, uh, who you know is suffering. In fact, it, you know, there are times when we, we, I think we've seen these wonderful broadcast clips of, of Kennedy greeting his kids when he steps off Marine One, the, the presidential helicopter on South Lawn, and they come bounding out on the South Lawn to greet him. And he reaches down and pats them on the back, but he can't pick them up because he has this back brace that prevents him from reaching down. And even if he could, he probably wouldn't do it because it could further aggravate his very painful back. So that pain, those medical conditions are constant companions for Kennedy throughout the course of his presidency. Do you think that experience with pain was partly what drove his push for physical fitness? I'm going to say it the way he said it, and vigor. 
<laughs> Viga. Uh, Viga was a word that sort of defined the Kennedys. And if we only knew the medical regimen that that Kennedy was under in order just to get out of bed every day, it would be staggering. But yes, I think the Kennedys sort of embody that in many respects. They were extremely active playing sports. You know, in many ways, sports was a way of excelling in the very competitive Kennedy family. That's that's the way you proved yourself at a certain point in time. But they also sailed and they, you know, they, they, were, they were extraordinarily active. So physical fitness, I think, was a natural part of the, the Kennedy brand. At one point, Kennedy uh, demands of his cabinet that they all lose 10 pounds. <laughs> He's really serious about p- people being at their very best. You know, it seems like he, because his own health was a struggle, he didn't take vigor for granted. You know, because because he struggled with his health, Kennedy understood, you know, how fundamental it was to everything better than anyone. And so that's why he really championed the idea of, you know, sound mind and a sound body and how important health and fitness was for the individual, but also for, for a citizen. And for that reason, like he made that a national effort. I mean, he was one of the, he was the guy who really spearheaded the presidential fitness test. A president's physical fitness test. That's exactly right, which many of us took in high school. Yeah. That's, that's, that comes from Jack Kennedy. And then he also revived the 50-mile uh, march, which became a thing like after, like in the 60s and 70s, people just go for walks for 50 miles. And I think Bobby Kennedy, he did the the 50-mile hike in loafers like in the winter. <laughs> that's exactly right. That's exactly, as, as one preppy might, but that's, that's right. precisely right. It's funny because uh, Kennedy, again, he looks so physically vigorous. We, we had no idea of the, the illnesses that he was battling, but, uh, but he really does personify the look of, of physical fitness. So we mentioned early in his presidency, he had the Bay of uh, Pigs invasion that was a fiasco. He got his butt kicked at a summit with Khrushchev and even admitted that like after that was over, he's like, I just got my butt handed to me by this guy. But then he has this moment uh, as one of the, it's like a really, it's like his greatest diplomatic victory. It was the Russian missile crisis. What did he, like what lessons did he take from his previous whoopings that was able to apply to navigate the Russian missile crisis effectively? Well, he sees in the in the Bay of Pigs uh, fiasco that that his his military advisors are very jingoistic. They are very hawkish. They want to get out there and they want to wage war. They want to they want to get into the heat of battle. And he thinks they've been very impetuous and they've steered him in the the wrong direction with the Bay of Pigs. By the same token, he goes before the American people and says that. Success has many fathers, but failure is an orphan. But at the end of the day, I'm the commander in chief, and the mistake of this lies with me. I'm 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 the the one to blame here, and the American people again, as I mentioned earlier, forgive him partly because he is so humble in that moment and resolves to do better. So I think he learns to keep the military at a distance to a certain extent. He learns to keep very close counsel which he does during the course of the Cuban Missile Crisis, 13 harrowing days when we find out that the Soviet Union is shipping troops and nuclear warheads to Cuba, which would represent the first time that Soviet weaponry is in the Western Hemisphere, just 90 miles from American shores, which means that Washington could be hit by a nuclear weapon within 20 minutes. So this becomes the central crisis of Kennedy's administration, staring down the Soviet Union 
ensuring in every way possible that they withdraw that those nuclear warheads and troops from Cuba so that we don't have a presence of Soviet military in the Western Hemisphere. And what do you think was the uh, traitor quality that allowed Kennedy to handle that crisis and, um, you know, and lent itself generally to what other success he had as president? Part of it is equanimity. And in, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, you really see that. He, he meets with Dwight Eisenhower in the second of his two transition meetings before becoming president. And in that meeting, Eisenhower is enumerating all of the, the trouble spots throughout the world, including Vietnam and and Cuba and Berlin and and other places. And Kennedy listens to all this and he could see the relief in Eisenhower's countenance to to put these problems on the, the desk of another president. And he leaves that meeting and says to an aide, I can't believe he can stare into the face of disaster with such equanimity. But yet it's it's equanimity that helps to save Kennedy in the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is as close as we have ever come to a nuclear exchange, to nuclear war. That is the most dangerous hour in mankind's history when we are so close to the possibility of a nuclear exchange. But it's Kennedy's cool in those moments, hence, in going back to the ambiguous title of the book, Incomparable Grace. There's an incomparable grace that he shows during those desperate hours. I mentioned Profiles in Courage before Kennedy's Pulitzer Prize winning book. And he uses a line from Hemingway, his favorite author, to define what courage is. And, and, and Hemingway said that courage is grace under pressure. And that's what Kennedy shows during the Cuban Missile Crisis, a certain grace under pressure, which is based on the equanimity that he exudes, the calm. He doesn't do anything rash. He doesn't back himself into a corner. He's not impetuous. He's not hungry for revenge. He waits out Khrushchev. They have a series of exchanges. And ultimately, the crisis is resolved through a quid pro quo that we have. The world wouldn't know this until much later. But the Cuban Missile Crisis is resolved because we tell the Soviet Union that we will withdraw nuclear warheads from Turkey, which is in the backyard of the Soviet Union, if they will withdraw their missiles from Cuba. So the Soviets ship those missiles out of Cuba, and six months later, very quietly, the Americans, we Americans, take our missiles out of Turkey. Did you have any qualities that worked against the success, like the cosmic of blunder? Well, I think it was that impetuousness that we, we talked about early on with the Bay of Pigs. There's a certain recklessness I think there was a, probably a certain hubris. You know, no man is prepared to be president. But Kennedy was probably a little brash when he came in. He became humble very quickly, to his credit. And he learned from the mistakes that you talked about. We talked about that disastrous uh, summit with Nikita Khrushchev in, in June of 1961, which I believe emboldens Khrushchev to ship those missiles to to Cuba eventually. But Kennedy realized, and that's how I start the book, with what might have been Kennedy's weakest moments when he has been, in his words, savaged by, by Nikita Khrushchev in these, in these meetings. But again, he is resolved to do better. And Kennedy works hard to become a better, uh, more humble, more effective leader. What lessons do you hope readers take away after reading your book? And how do you hope their idea of Kennedy has changed? when they close the, the book? 
Well, I don't know what idea they have before they come to the book, Brett, I, but I hope they see the, the power of leadership. I think in particular, Kennedy shows us the power of rhetoric, the power uh, that words can have at, at crucial times. I, I quote Clement Attlee, who was the successor to Winston Churchill as prime minister of Great Britain, who said of Churchill's great rhetorical ability during the Second World War, which helped to sustain the British people, that he says, words at great moments can be deeds. And you see that with Kennedy. Words at the great moments of his presidency almost become deeds. So when Kennedy elevates civil rights to a moral issue, which he does in a speech around civil rights in June of 1963, that elevates the cause. That's be, that becomes an almost a, an inflection point in the struggle for civil rights in this country. When he goes to Rice University and says, we choose to go to the moon and to do the other things, he makes that adventure a uniquely American proposition and rallies American around the, the very ambitious and very expensive effort to take Americans to the moon. When he stands at the the foot of the Berlin Wall and says, Ich bin ein Berliner. I am a Berliner because I am a free man. And as a free man, I say to you, I am a citizen of Berlin. That rallies the world around the cause of freedom and liberty in the face of the Soviet threat of tyranny. Well, Mark, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Well, they can they can certainly go, uh, they, they can buy the book online and at, at bookstores, and I certainly hope they do. And I am the president and CEO of the uh, LBJ Foundation, and we do a lot of work on the presidency here, including a podcast called With the Bark Off, Conversations on the American Presidency. Fantastic. Well, Mark Updegrove, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Brett, thanks so much for having me. It's been a, been a delight. My guest today is Mark Updegrove. He's the author of the book, Incomparable Grace. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about Mark's work at lbjlibrary.org. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash jfk. We find links to resources and we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years about pretty much anything you'd think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android and iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider Consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you not to listen to the podcast, but put what you've heard into action. <laughs>